to the bitcoin podcast episode 219 i'm your first host marcello and i'm host number two d and i am host number three dr Corey petty back at you episode which one was this 219 you said yeah back at it back at it that's what i meant to say i'm gonna start off i'm gonna start off this episode with a talking point do it oh nice but you won't um, D did a really cool announcement this week called Cool Wallet, and it came. I have it. Are we doing video? We're looking at it. We're not doing video. I didn't know if you, you guys got one already. I got one. Um, and I wanted to relay that uh, if anybody who's listening to the show, they're not sponsored by us, and I haven't really dove into this, but you get $20 off if you use the BTC podcast 2018 if you go to coolwallet.io. And uh, this one is a mobile wallet so i guess you connect it to your phone and it's a little bit more portable because we have ledger blues and if you're not connected to a computer you're screwed so you're kind of anchored to your usb port so this one on the other hand go with you anywhere so that's cool yep it's actually a pretty neat interview um the way it works is you have your phone and then there is a bluetooth sync from your phone to the cool wallet s it's the size of a debit card um, like the, the size of a debit card, it has a little bitty button on it. And when you are sending a crypto transaction and it works with all the majors and all the ERC 20 tokens, you go into the app, uh, and then you sign the transaction with pressing the card. So you've got, uh, you have to physically push the button to send the transaction on the card. And of course your biometric, uh, there's Face ID with the iOS app, and there's a, a Face ID with the Android app. So it's pretty secure. Of course, it's a mobile wallet, so don't walk around with tens of thousands <laughs> of dollars on you. Like, yeah. But it, it's it's a pretty neat little hardware wallet, and it's pretty secure. How many should we get? I want one. I want to play with it. I want to try and break it. Uh, we got two. We got two. We got two. Um, I can send you mine, Corey, if you want to tinker with it. I was going to do an unboxing for content for our youtube if you want to do uh, the unboxing do that and just send it to me afterwards will do um and then the, i guess the other thing i wanted to say is uh last episode we had a call out for anyone who wanted to do an ether show and the response has been tremendous and we actually have that in the works so i just wanted to thank the community for that and we have good content coming towards Hell you yeah. guys pretty soon shout out uh, to you too you know who you are um, you're clearly well, listening. Yeah, you're clearly listening to the show. Of course, you're going to hear that. Um, yeah. 
Well, I mean, when it comes to usability, I feel like things like this are like one step closer to comfortability. And the thing that I talked about in that announcement is like that physical thing someone can have and know that they're now interacting differently with money than the way they did before is kind of neat. And I feel like this kind of touches on that. And I don't think they're going to be the only wallet that's doing this. So status um, is doing the same thing. I know you. I knew you were going to say that's why I gave it to you. <laughs> Wait, that, that, they're coming out with a tangible product. Yeah, Status just has a hardware yeah. wallet component to it. Uh, we actually they announced it at DevCon three when we were there. Um, it's a, there, it's a so the first implementation will be a Java card that doesn't have any interface. It's an NFC card that basically stores all your information. So by sending transactions, storing your money, it's all on that card. It does all the signing, things like that. Yeah. And so like you do all the stuff in Status, you log in with it. And then like you say like, hey, I want to send some, somebody some money. And you set it up, sit, and it's like, all right, are you ready to send it? And it's, yeah. And then it says, all right, we'll tap the phone with your Java card. And it'll sign the transaction and confirm it and then send it off. Things like are, that. Are one of these better than the other? Or is this Chase Bank, yours as well as Fargo, the Ledger's Bank of America? Are these just different flavors for people to have? Or yeah. is there clearly people trying to make it more secure, make it better as time goes on. All right, so like, a, the, like the three pillars of security are like if you want to secure something, you want to kind of shield it with something you know, something you have, and something you are. So something you know is like a password. That's like something in your head, right? Yeah. And then something you are is like some biometric data, like your retinal scan, fingerprint, facial recognition, things like that, or like, you know, something like that. And then something you have is something physical, like a hardware device. So like, mm -hmm. that's like two factor authentication with a, like a, like a UV key or some type of hardware device that stores things that's required to actually get to that thing. So the combination of all three of those things is typically really, really good security because it's really difficult for somebody to take all three things at the same time. And so yeah. these hardware wallets is uh, pushing people to understand that they need something you have. And it's also taking the keys, the actual things that lock up the value and putting them somewhere not on the internet. So people can't get to them. Mm -hmm. That's you the whole, whole thing. So like what you're saying is like, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Your question is a good question, Cello, because it's, it's like a lot of it is, is the same thing. And they're all different kind of flavors of the same thing, but it's moving, it's moving the way we interact with this technology in the right direction so that people handle their keys appropriately, as opposed to being like, oh, I forgot my password. I guess I'll just kind of ask to get it reset because that doesn't happen here. You need to treat these I, things with value, like as they're valuable and they are. Because I think if a GPP is looking at a wallet, I think that they're, they're not looking at like the three pillars of security. They're just saying, well, which one's the most secure? Which one is going to uh, have the, the biggest padlock on, on my money? And I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know. Because it seems like a lot of these wallets are unrolling out features. Features, you know, this is portable. This this has an easier uh, two-factor authentication system. This, But you know what I mean? Like, you, you get it because it's your job. How do we make sure, like, the general population chooses the most secure wallet? And they don't get hacked because right now a lot of people are listening to McAfee, and he's selling snake oil. 
So this shit got hacked immediately. He well, claims no one has. Well, that's, 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 what he claims is stupid because it's impossible to hack something that doesn't do anything. Like the device doesn't actually store anything ever, so it's impossible to hack it. That's his claim. No shit. It, like the, there's no reason for the device. Like that one of those pillars, something you have, you don't require mm -hmm. the device to do to store information how he's storing it. So the people that are claiming they're hacking it, they're bullshitters too because you can't hack it. No, they're 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 hacking the de physical device and do making it do something it's not supposed to do, but they're not yeah. getting the money off of it. Mm. It's it's literally like, um, it's literally if I created a twelve seed phrase in Jax, and I never told you about it, and I stored it in my head, and never wrote it down, and then I put that file encrypted on a thumb drive and gave it to you and said steal the money out of that file and you couldn't do it i'd say it's unhackable that's the gist of what he's saying or even 24 seed phrase which makes it even that much more difficult to hack did he um did he does he know that they hacked it and they're playing doom on it ah uh, who cares it doesn't matter ah uh. You know what I'd like for my own personal security is my own personal Ed 209 robot from RoboCop. <laughs> I feel like I would be the most badass dude in the tri-state area if I had that. You know, of course, I'd have like some sort of hardware wallet to turn it on so it would only react to me. But... This is this is like, I'll continue the conversation outside of everybody wanting RoboCop. Uh, like... <laughs> This is really important for adoption because it's if we if we flood the market with uh, this is how you interact with crypto, then they're automatically assuming this is how you're supposed to store things, which is which is these by, you know, that's the safest way to do things when you're storing private keys. So we're only giving them the option by flooding the market with stuff like this to use best practices. If if like, I like it, think about if mass adoption happened back in the day. And everyone only had to only knew how to like enter private keys on the internet. Think about like how much more money would be stolen than it is now. Mm, a lot, right? And if we don't, if, if, if mass adoption happens and we don't have best practices on how to secure your money, then we're screwed. Yeah. Cause I, I was just thinking like when you're, when you were 16 years old and your parents opened up a checking account for you, there was no conversation about what bank you should do it at. It was just like, hey, go to this bank down the street, get a checking account, put 10 bucks in there, get a savings account. And I don't want people to treat this the same way. Like, hey, just get a wallet, do this, do that. I want people to know why they're they're doing, you know, what's influencing their choices. Well, this touches on something that came from one of the interviews we had recently. What Corey was talking about is that crypto innately Think, it forces you to think about money differently. You don't have a choice. Like you can't get into crypto and think like, oh, these are just my dollars. These are just my, this is just my status token. This is just my Omisa Go token. You have to think about it differently and you have to behave with it differently. And that's why I like these new physical things that people can see and think about differently. I'm still looking for a magic blockchain box. Like a modem was a magic internet box though. Somebody needs to make that. Maybe it, that's what it, these it wallets are. Maybe that's what these wallets are. Like if like someone just like spams the shit out of people by sending out a cheap wallet for everyone to have. 
and then he gives them a way to kind of interact with these things, like, then maybe they'll maybe they'll do it. I don't know. Well, I, I should, I should say uh, our ledger blues were about three hundred. This one comes yeah. in at two hundred. Do we want cheap wallets? Do people are people not going to trust a wallet unless it's over a hundred and fifty bucks? Because I remember M- M- Melanie Shapiro, I think her name was, had the ninety nine dollar price point, the case wallet. I think I think the status hardware wallets could be like ten bucks. Are are people going to trust something that cheap? I think it's going to be a natural like there's going to be a natural correlation to how much value you're associating with that wallet, right? So for our Ledger Blues, there's a lot of value in that. So I'm okay with spending three hundred dollars and having something that's really nice and fancy yeah. and and user friendly. Um, my mobile wallets, I keep walking around money. Like if I'm walking around the city and I see somebody takes crypto, I'm going to go there and spend it. And that's on my phone. And I'm okay with losing that if something happened to my phone. Um, I think it's going to be correlated to how much value you're keeping on the wallet. So that's, that's going to be natural. I think that's my two cents. It's my two bits. Ooh, two bits, two Satoshis. Right. Two way. You guys see what I did there or what are we calling sub Satoshis now? Because uh, on the Lightning Network, people are passing transactions back and forth at like point zero zero one of a Satoshi. Dust. Oh, okay. I don't That's know. I made that cool up. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's not very cool if you're like, send me some dust. It's like, uh, no, thank you. Um, I don't know. That was a good talking point, Joe. That was a good way to start off the show. Wallets, the very basic thing you need to interact with the blockchain, are evolving in... Um, I still wish we case. wouldn't call them wallets. I wish they weren't called wallets. I wish they were called keychains. Well, it's it's in the name, so it's getting worse, Corey. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like it's moving in the wrong direction, but there's nothing we can do about it. Well, I mean, what a keychain is not associated with money. Yeah, it's associated with keys. Like, like people don't people don't hold money with crypto. You never hold, hold money. the money. The money is never in your possession. The keys are in your possession. Mm-hmm. Like you, like the things on your phone, the things on your computer, the you know what Coinbase has, and we say you need to keep that to maintain your value. It's only keys. The value is locked up in the blockchain, which everyone has. Mm. That's like, and that's an intuition thing, right? That that tells you what you're doing and how to think about it. Yeah, and that doesn't come when you say wallet because people think they're storing it in their in their in their phone or whatever and they, like the coins are there and if they want to give somebody a coin they're actually giving somebody the actual thing that's not the case and so like you can't reason about these things as well if you have bad names for them it's too late now man yep too late we're fucked it's over <laughs> it's way too late <laughs> like we, we just gotta force it down people's throat like it's a wallet take it there's money there whatever no I'll, um, I'll I'll keep singing that siren song until I the day I die. But no one's. I mean, maybe I'll influence like three people. But whatever. It's uh, it's far too late. Um, but we have a very good interview for you guys. Uh, here today. Ain't no other podcast aside from Let's Talk Bitcoin is having Andreas on four times. Four and he's a people. part of that podcast. So it doesn't count. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. count. And that that is his podcast. So, yeah, four times. He's close to being. Is that the most anyone's come on? Uh, Epstein's been Epstein, on four. Five, four no, five. he hadn't gotten his, his. He's coming on soon, and that'll be his his lucky number oh. five, I think. That's crazy that Andreas is like 
at the top as far as yeah, people yeah. have been on our show. He's the number one influencer according to something right crypto influencers crypto influencers io yeah well he you know obviously you're going to hear the interview the the thing that resonated with me is he says that he has a revolving audience about every six months so for me he's probably one of the most important people in this community because every six months he is refreshing just educating people and i I mean that's mass adoption right there he's doing yeah it is he's doing work yeah, it is. Can you imagine every six months you get a whole new horde of people that need to learn the same thing you were just talking about six months back? I guess it's kind of like you get classes, right? If you teach the same class every year, it's yeah. like, here's a whole new horde. Horde yeah. of people that don't know what I'm saying. Time to repeat myself did. over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, it's almost like, you know, you go to like a... a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert, and you're like, play the hits, and they're like, ah, oh, we want to play our new stuff, and they're like, no, play your old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> play that song I know. It. Play that yeah. song I know. <laughs> but we are creative juices. Nobody cares. No one cares. <laughs> we just want the, the stuff we want. All right. Anyways, Andreas Antonopoulos. He needs no introduction. If he does, then you're probably part of the horde we were just talking about. So here it is. Hey, we're joined uh, by Andreas Antonopoulos, author, lecturer, all-around crypto guru. Whether you live in places like Poland or Denver, Colorado, he doesn't discriminate. He's going to come to a city near you and spread knowledge everywhere. And of course, author of Mastering Ethereum, which has a Q3 uh, 2018 upcoming release. So be on the lookout for that. And Andreas, you've been nice enough to stop by four times. If you If you come on one more time, you get your members only jacket. Oh, fantastic. Looking forward to that. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's just jump in. Um, For me, first and foremost, I wanted to know how your speaking tour was going, because the last time that we talked was right before the community kind of stood by your side in late 2017 and donated a large amount to you. And I was curious on how that affected your ability to write books, give talks without having to worry about donations and whatnot. Are you you able to concentrate and focus more? and provide better content for the people? Well, I'll tell you, the the big difference that's happened over the last year was um, I started using a platform called Patreon. And um, what Patreon has allowed me to do is switch my focus from um, trying to book commercial conferences that would allow me to, you know, pay my staff and expand my message and uh, work to deliver more education in more languages to more people, which has been my mission all along. Um, and, and be able to support that entire endeavor and, in fact, grow it um, with, with funding from the very people that I'm trying to reach. So um, with a, a Patreon platform, people subscribe and they, they uh, offer you know, $5 a month, for example, which is my biggest base. And um, that gives me a steady, predictable income that I can use uh, to build a team because, uh, you know, uh, people don't realize how much work goes on behind the scenes to schedule um, travel and touring and do talks and video editing and audio editing and posting and all of that work and all of the translation work that goes into it. Um, so, for example, I, I've now posted 300 videos um, and we have 291 sets of subtitles uh, in 27 languages um, for my videos. Uh, and most of my books have now been translated in five or six languages each. 
So all of these efforts take a lot of coordination and Patreon has given me a tremendous ability to uh, grow my team in a responsible way where I can predict um, my income and have the ability to pay my staff. I know that has to be a breath of fresh air because before, before that, you know, it, it, it probably was a little tough to balance and even have a team at all. So. Oh, uh, absolutely. It was. And, and in fact, you know, the, the, the real challenge was that the people who have um, the money to pay for commercial uh, speaking events and conferences are generally doing it because they're trying to promote something. It's either uh, banks trying to promote fintech, blockchain, bullshit stuff, or it's conferences that are driven by ICO endorsements, publicity, and marketing. And I don't play in either of those games. I'm not interested in either of those things. So the straight-up education on open-source community-oriented projects doesn't really have funding for obvious reasons. Um, and so Patreon gives me the op opportunity to, to continue to do that work and not have to chase around these uh, stupid conferences where they constantly ask me to, um, to compromise my integrity, which I don't do. But of course, that makes for complicated negotiations. Hmm. And would you say that like, um, it, it's, it's interesting that Patreon is the thing that allows you to do that. I feel like this space of cryptocurrency should make it easier to do that. It's just we don't have the infrastructure to provide such a platform or someone hasn't built it yet. Like, do you feel like there is something that's moving in that direction or are we still stuck with traditional services that allow you to do it uh, until we get there? And maybe how far off can we, can, is it that you see until we do get there? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is a bit about having a balance between ideology and pragmatism, right? Mm -hmm. um, and while I would love to use cryptocurrencies for everything and um, have everything in my business run on cryptocurrencies, that's not always possible. And part of the reason for that is because my audience is 95% people who are brand new to the space, who've been involved in cryptocurrencies for six months or less. And that's always been the case. Because the space is growing so fast, I'm always dealing with the influx of new people. I like to think of myself a bit as the crypto version of a Walmart greeter, right? So I'm standing in the front door and saying, oh, <laughs> welcome. Let me explain how this place works. Um, and as a result, most of the people who walk, who walk into you know, <laughs> my content have n never really understood this stuff and probably don't have cryptocurrency. So that's one challenge. The other challenge is you know, there's a lot of things that are just easier to do with, with fiat. And, and one of those things is recurring payments, right? So um, crypto is a push technology where in order to have a payment, you have to push it. Whereas most fiat payment systems are pull. You know, you can have a recurring mandate that pulls from your credit card. Um, the truth is that when people make a donation, it's usually a one-off thing. Um, and it tends to correlate very closely to the price, which means that when the price is really high, that's when people are willing to fund different activities. But when the price drops, then they are very reluctant to, to spend their crypto. In general, they're reluctant anyway, but even more so. 
Um, but turns out when the price is low is when I'm doing my best work um, because I don't have all of the distraction of FOMO, right? And greed mm -hmm. and to the moon and Lambos and all of that shit. So <laughs> um, it's, it's in the quiet times in between the, you take the people who came in uh, because of all of the exuberance and you try to explain why the technology and the principles are important so that they stay for different reasons. They come for the moon and the Lambos. They stay because they understand economic inclusion and the other six billion and um, the, the power of decentralized control over money and how to control their own keys. So, um, you know, in a way, crypto isn't ideal for me to have something steady and predictable. And the other thing is, you know, honestly, I'm an entrepreneur, right? I'm a risk taker. I'm willing to go without income for several months and speculate on, on the future and be willing to put some risk into it. But I can't expect my staff to be the same. You know, they're not entrepreneurs. Um, my staff have mortgages and orthodontist payments and ballet and whatever for their kids, right? They have standing obligations. They need some income security. I can't take on someone new unless I'm sure I can pay them for the next two years. Um, because it would be irresponsible to do otherwise. I can't force them to take risks um, the way I do. And so, again, that's where crypto isn't really ideal for that. There's too much volatility. And it's important that I have some stability, um, to, primarily so that I can bring on staff. And as a result, with Patreon, uh, I've now got seven people working uh, on a variety of projects behind the scene. And that, that team has grown over the last year. Uh, it's part-time mostly, but um, it gives me tremendous flexibility and, and, and really leverage, right? It's a multiplying effect so that I can be much more productive. You know, part of that realization is um, I used to do all of my own travel scheduling, organization, calendar scheduling, and all of that. Turns out I suck at it. <laughs> and... <laughs> Part of being an entrepreneur is recognizing not just the things you're good at, but the things you really suck at, and then hiring someone who's actually good at those things so that you can get on with other things, right? I'm good at writing books and explaining things. I'm really bad at figuring out if, you know, UTC and British Standard Time is the same today because of daylight savings or not. And so I got someone else to do that. <laughs> I would like to add to that. I remember our first interview, you sent me an app to calculate like time, the time zones. I just put in my time zone and it would spit out what time zone you were in. And I hate to say it was probably the worst user experience. And I ended up just using Google <laughs> because I had no idea how to use that app. But um, yep. thank you for your analogy about the Walmart greeter, by the way. At least you're a good one. <laughs> Like you're, that's what a good Walmart greeter does. Cause when I walk in, they're just like foods on the left, everything else is on the right. You know, the drill, keep it moving. Welcome to Costco. <laughs> I love you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's take it to crypto. Like there has been when the space grows exponentially. So you take a week off and you're just like, what, what happened? And yeah. <laughs> you, you know, we look at, bitcoin's development right now and i was just recently watching uh i think his name's peter will is it will peter peter will will yeah. i always get that wrong and taproot and snore and there's all these developments happening in bitcoin that, that no one really hears about and then likewise the same is going on in ethereum which is easily 
uh, you know, it's 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 growing to be just as good and functional as Bitcoin, if not better in some aspects. And so you talk about the Internet of Money, where how close do you feel where we are to, to that reality? I still I feel very that we're very far personally, but have we gotten closer? Um, I, yeah, I know that's really one of the challenging things with the perspective. It's like a split perspective in this space. On the one hand, if you look at the broader community and you look at the easy to use user interfaces, wallets, exchanges, things like that, the basic infrastructure, um, we're far. Um, most of the people who jump onto the crypto bandwagon get in during these periods of extreme greed and, and fear of missing out and momentum that we have with each one of these bubble cycles and really have no interest in the underlying principles. Um, and the user interfaces they find don't really teach them how to hold uh, cryptocurrency securely and um, in, in a sovereign way, right? With, with control over their own keys. And so in terms of what the users are doing and how, how far that's progressing in adoption, we're still very early days, right? Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if you pay attention to technology, the innovation that's going on, the research that's going on, um, just the, the momentum in terms of innovation, in terms of uh, pure cryptography for, 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 one, for one part, um, you, you gave the example of uh, Peter Wool's excellent uh, talk recently. He did a presentation at the San Francisco Bitcoin Developers Meetup. Uh, I'm going to do a little plug, a plug here because I was the founder of that group uh, back in 2013. Um, mm. I, I, I've passed on control to others who have taken that to a huge level. Um, it's a developer-focused meetup, and um, they do really excellent presentations. They have core developers coming in and describing their latest, um, their latest innovation. Once you appreciate what people like Peter Wool and Andrew Polstra and Greg Maxwell are doing in terms of pure cryptography research, and I've, I've left out 20 other names, I, just having to pick three or four to mention here, inevitably I've left out. A lot of people are doing amazing work, but... Um, Taproot and Graftroot, which you mentioned recently, um, which you can see in that presentation, the, the implications for privacy. This is, this is novel stuff. I mean, this is pushing the boundaries of cryptography and inventing new stuff. They've taken Schnorr signatures um, to a whole new level, uh, that technology, uh, and invented some amazing new tools in that space. So that's happening in Bitcoin, but at the same time, there's a ton of innovation happening in, uh, in uh, the entire crypto ecosystem. Uh, I've been involved in, crypt in cryptography uh, since the late 80s, early 90s. I've been part of the cryptography, cypherpunk, if you want to call it, movement. And I've never seen a period of time where the rate of experimentation and innovation has been this fast. So again, that's the, that's the dichotomy. On the one hand, what's actually reaching the users is some fairly poorly designed wallets, um, a lot of custodial exchanges, a lot of misplaced priorities and greed. But 
what's happening in the background, you know, the stuff that you're not going to see for maybe two to three years in wallets and user interfaces, the research stuff that's just hitting the pipeline now is amazing. And so then you have to bridge that gap and it takes a bit of patience. I remember in 2013, I went to one of the first conferences and I saw hierarchical deterministic wallets, BIP32, being presented for the first time at this conference. Um, and by Thomas V of, of Electrum, I believe, was, was doing that. And my mind was blown. And, and then I had to sit back and wait impatiently for at least three years before we saw mainstream HD wallets. Um, and you know now it's five years later, and we're finally at the point where you have pretty much every wallet you see out there is a multi-currency hierarchical deterministic um, mm -hmm. flexible wallet with a BIP39 seed, you know, that technology. So it took five years for that to, to really reach users. Um, I'd it's say such there's a game of patience. Go ahead, Corey. Go yeah. Ahead. I mean, that's, it's kind of the, the, the I want to add on to that. It is a game of patience, but there seems to be multiple routes in which people should be focusing on. And I'm not sure which one is more important. I mean, if the end goal is adoption, shouldn't, I mean, there's, there's two things you need usability. Uh, that doesn't compromise on security and self-sovereignty, but you also need scalability, which allows more and more people to access the same technology without compromising usability. And I, I understand that a lot of the implementations that are, are like improvements in across the board crypto are working on usability and privacy with kind of a um, second consequence of scalability in a lot of ways. But like, do you, do you think there's a, a, a lack of push for scalability or, or, or like, what, is it even worth looking at usability if we can't scale to a much larger adoption rate? Um, I, I think the priorities are actually correct. I think, um, there's a difference. There's a, there's a qualitative difference between scalability and privacy as to where you can do it in the infrastructure stack, meaning that. Um, scalability is something that you can uh, implement in multiple layers simultaneously. Um, but privacy is something that really is only effective if you do it at the lowest layer possible and you do it on by default, always on, and in such a way that people who elect to use privacy features do not stand out of the crowd from everybody else. So, um, I think for that reason, it's very important to have privacy baked in, always on, at the base layer. And then you can always build scalability uh, in that layer and layers above it in stages. If, however, you don't build privacy in the, in the base layer, it's very, very difficult to retrofit. And we've seen that with the internet. I think one of the biggest lessons from the development of internet working protocols like TCPIP was that there wasn't enough privacy built into the base layer. And it's been extremely difficult to overcome that problem in higher layers. Um, so you can do bolt-on networks like we've seen with Tor, uh, but you don't get the inherent privacy. And that's turned the internet into a, a very problematic network from the perspective of surveillance. Um, and, and that has a ripple effect, which, which ends up causing problems 20 years down the road, right? And you can't mm -hmm. easily fix that. Whereas scaling 
scaling is an ongoing battle, um, and you you can address it at, at several different layers simultaneously. So I, I think, in fact, the priorities are correct. Um, we see these periods where there's a massive influx of new people, and, and that's when the scaling problems become very, very um, obvious um, during the, the FOMO moments. Um, but you don't optimize for those moments. You don't optimize for peak um, because you'll never be able to create a network that can scale gracefully at a moment when you have a sudden increase in capacity or in demand, sorry, that's exponential, right? No mm -hmm. matter what you design, you can't design um, Netflix or Amazon or Google for the moments when everybody tries to hit the service at the, at the same time. That takes decades to do. And mm -hmm. we've seen it with those services too, right? Remember, um, remember how difficult it was to get your packages delivered at Christmas <laughs> or um, trying to watch a very popular video on Netflix? And it, it takes a while. So what I'm saying is that we can't expect the scale to be there for those moments when you have a sudden 10x increase in demand. Um, and as we've seen, as soon as that goes away, we're doing fine. The, the network is, is quite capable of handling today's transaction volume. And uh, so I, I think those priorities of development are actually correct. What, what about a, a, like mass adoption on a, on a surface level? Because there's something that the guys and I debate on, and that's the subject of... Um, I guess the intersection of mass adoption and when exact, exactly crypto is going to be successful and whether people should be aware that they're using it or not. A lot of people in our Slack and people I talk to believe that our society could one day have blockchain-like networks that run a lot of our current infrastructure, but it would likely be running in the background. And you gave an example in this instance of like Linux. It's It's been used in virtually every single device, such as lawnmowers, but nobody knows that Linux is in a lawnmower and thus nobody cares and thus the philosophies perished. So if Bitcoin hits mass adoption, just like Linux, people will forget what it stands for. So, I mean, if we're measuring Bitcoin's success, um, would it be when everyone knows why they're using Bitcoin for? Would that be the correct line of thinking? Well, I, I would say that for, from one perspective, you know, looking at that analogy again, um, people don't know that they're running Linux in their more, uh, lawnmower. Uh, people don't know that they're running it in their thermostat. Um, and they don't understand the principles of open source. But does that mean that it has failed in that respect? Quite the opposite, I would say. Uh, one of the reasons people are running this stuff in the lawnmower and their thermostat is because it's so well supported on such a broad range of devices. And that's a direct outcome of the open source methodology and philosophy. Um, and whether the people using the thermostat know it or not, the developers who decide what projects to work on certainly know the difference between an open source, open protocol, open stack thermostat and a closed one, and, and will tinker and play and, and innovate and do permissionless innovation at the edge on those devices that are open. Um, so in the end, openness is one. Um, the open systems have proliferated tremendously in the open source software culture has proliferated tremendously in the last two decades, um, whether people know it or not. 
I like to um, maybe they, rephrase what you're saying in terms of like they now have the option to do these things, whereas beforehand they never did. And that's that's the important part is the ability to choose what you'd like to do as opposed to be relegated into a specific tool. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and how does the how does that really emerge at a higher level for the person using that? The thermostat works better. And the reason the thermostat works better is because um, the drivers that control the um, the firmware in that thermostat are better developed and have fewer bugs because they're developed in an open source fashion, um, and so that that software is more reliable uh, than the proprietary software developed as a side business by a single thermostat manufacturer who's like focused on a single chipset, right? And we've seen this with wireless routers, we've seen it with any lawnmowers and all of these other stuff. So in the end, the consumer still gets the result of the principle. Um, they just don't understand how that magically ends up in a better product. I have, you know, some... when it comes, go ahead. When it comes to adoption of, of cryptocurrency mainstream and what success means, I did a talk about that recently, which you, you referred to with the Linux analogy, but to, to me, uh, success in a cryptocurrency is that we still have available a cryptocurrency that can be used by almost anyone that maintains the fundamental principles that is decentralized, that is censorship resistant, that is borderless. Um, and as long as that exists, I don't care if the rest of the mainstream choose to use predominantly that or they choose to use Facebook coin because that's more uh, convenience to them. Uh, we're going to have all of the above. You know, We're going to have a world in which we have thousands of cryptocurrencies and people can choose to use what they want. Um, and then it's up to the market to decide what actually is serves the needs of people better. Um, I'm an optimist because I believe that open systems in the long run uh, serve the needs of more people uh, more effectively and therefore they, they proliferate and win. Now, while yeah, I, I just like it adds directly onto what you're just saying, and but it's a it's kind of the opposite. Like when you have all of these options, and it becomes easy to use because of um, the way it's proliferated and developed, and so on and so forth. There's a, a like a, a the other side to the sword, and that is security vulnerabilities um, being implemented in things that that proliferate that no one understands. And this this is run, this is both in the traditional infrastructure as well as the blockchain infrastructure. Like with traditionally, when everything runs Linux, those who naively run Linux and the things like their thermostat have vulnerabilities of how people can get into their home networks through their thermostat. And with the blockchain infrastructure, you have like the ERC twenty standard making it easy to run tokens and create ICOs, and then those in, those running rampant as scams, and people don't realize what's good and what's not. Like and with every new thing comes more and more security vulnerabilities especially when the end user is so far removed from how it works how do we and this is becoming worse and worse with iot and so on and so forth so how do we control that or is this not something we have to, like this it's certainly something we have to worry about but how do we educate people about this type of stuff Well, I, I would I would argue that uh, software that is de developed uh, collaboratively and with more participants from more diverse um, environments ends up being better. So, 
if the same firmware driver that's used in your thermostat, your lawnmower, your fridge is also used uh, for, uh, you know, military microcontroller applications and financial services applications, uh, then you get all of these developers from all of these different backgrounds working on that one piece of code and they improve it and reduce the number of vulnerabilities it has. Versus, for example, if you have a proprietary algorithm from a, a, a single manufacturer that um, isn't under scrutiny, uh, which of course a, a determined attacker can easily find the vulnerabilities. It's not like they're not there just because nobody knows what it's running. Um, and, and those turn out to be much, much worse. Uh, and we see that with, uh, with a variety of technologies. So I, I still believe in the general idea of open source that many eyeballs make bugs shallow. And that applies to security too. Um, open systems that have diverse users who, who are also developing applications for, for different uses um, tend to have fewer vulnerabilities and those vulnerabilities get fixed and patched and um, improved qu uh, faster without the end user really knowing about it. I mean, security is an ongoing problem. We, we've basically started handling information security uh, just in the last 25 years in, in a way that touches the lives uh, of most everyone and at least in Western developed nations. And people are not accustomed to handling information security. Uh, we understand physical security in a very intuitive level. Uh, as I like to say, you know, we, we've had four and a half million years of practice with physical security, um, <laughs> not just our species, but many other species, you know, the first caveman figures out by watching uh, a squirrel how to hide a nut under a rock, and, and that's physical security for you, right there, plenty of practice. <laughs> Taking that into the information security domain, we've only had 25 years of practice, and we suck at it. Uh, we still suck at it. And we will continue to suck at it, because the, the rate of, of development and innovation is moving much faster than our ability to adapt as a society. Um, that that's that's just part of the game, unfortunately. Um, a lot of that, I think, has to do with user interface design. So I, I have enormous respect for for talented user interface designers and user experience designers who are able to create user interfaces where the intuitive action is the most secure one, right? where a user who doesn't understand what they're doing and is simply guided um, by the metaphor, the design metaphor, to perform what seems like the most intuitive action at each point um, falls into the habit of doing the most secure action because that's what's presented as the most intuitive one. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. So, so that's great, great user experience design, right? Where you don't have to know that you're, you don't really have a choice to do something that's secure or something that's insecure, but instead the metaphor guides you to doing the most secure thing. And that's something we, we don't yet have uh, in abundance in the uh, cryptocurrency space. You're absolutely right. It's a challenge I gave to the community uh, months ago, and there's no... It seems like there should be a teams and teams of people working on the AOL moment that taught the world how to interact with the internet. I mean, that's that's essentially what it did. 
and it was fun and it was fancy free but now all the way the internet is built has has been because of the user experience of something like AOL you know you have logins you have passwords and there's certain buttons you click certain buttons you don't there's just there was a whole experience built up there that taught people oh this is how you interact with the internet and I still don't feel like anything in crypto is 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 trying to assess that problem and after uh, assess it to solve it so yeah and think about when AOL happened though uh I mean AOL happened 15 years into the internet as we know it yeah that's very true right so we're currently in year nine of uh, cryptocurrencies mm. <laughs> the game so, of patience is that what we're going to name this episode Joe? <laughs> the game uh, of patience but I, I always wonder like you know it took a long time for debit cards to happen it took a long time for the internet to happen i mean we're in the future of this thing why does it why does the adoption cycles have to be the same why does it take 15 years for something to launch or 10 years why can't it take two can't change I, I, first of all i i don't think it is the same adoption cycle i think we're moving much faster than uh, certainly anyone would expect if you if you describe this process in 2008 to someone and said all right in the next year um an unknown person is going to bootstrap a new monetary standard and currency from nothing uh based on internet protocols within less than a decade this will be worth several hundred billion dollars have spawned an entire industry with thousands and thousands of alternative uh currencies and be discussed on every TV news show and become part of the human zeitgeist. They'd say, well, well when you put it that way, that's never going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, so when you put it that way, on the one hand, we're working on an accelerated basis because starting off with the internet is already there. So you have a platform for propagating these ideas, these protocols, building the user communities, the culture and the technological innovation on. So we, having that platform makes things move faster. But you've got to balance that against this other really non-intuitive um, understanding, which is that we're talking about reinventing money. And money is an ancient technology. It's, it's, mm -hmm. and it's, and it's one of those technologies that is so ancient and so deeply embedded in our culture that we don't even appreciate that it is a technology and we are completely blind to its effects and uh, unsure about its function. So people don't understand money because it's so old and so deeply embedded into culture that it's become like this magical thing, right? Um, there are other technologies that do the same, you know, at this point for people being born today, electricity is pretty much magic. Um, computer screens are pretty much magic. <laughs> Don't understand how exactly they work. Um, in fact, I was, I was, uh, watching, um, I was watching, uh, my niece recently interact with a window and, uh, like a glass window and she was tapping on its screen. Because in her experience, everything that's glass is a touch surface. Um, so, <laughs> so she was trying to invoke the user interface as she does on her, on her iPad and was, was tapping on the glass window and wondering why it's not doing anything. Um, 
I would say that is the experience we have with money. It's, it's, it's this magical thing that is pervasive in our society, and we don't even understand it. It's an actual technology. Um, it is a technological innovation. And so cryptocurrencies are changing this. They're changing a technology that has only gone through five iterations in the last maybe 100,000 years. And we're just doing iteration five. And so people are confused as to why it's taking so long, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's because we're changing something so fundamental that people's preconceived notions about what it is, how it works, and what they should expect from it um, are completely unquestioned. They're taken for granted. And cryptocurrencies challenge every one of those assumptions. So it's a bit more difficult a pill to swallow. You know, culture, our society has more difficulty uh, accepting change on something that uh, is not even considered on a daily basis. It's very funny you mentioned that. Um, that I don't want to call it a phenomenon, but uh, it's just it seems like the more basic and abstract an abstraction is that we've adopted as humans. The the tougher it is to make changes to that abstraction. And exactly. And it's, it's, it's people like, oh, Bitcoin is so simple. You know, we're just trying to change money. It's like, uh, let's pump the brakes on how simple that is. Like we, we <laughs> money's been around for a while and we're trying to change thought processes. Uh, we're trying to change like psychological viewpoints. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, shit, you can't even come to agreement on what money is when a lot of these conversations start. So you just spend 30 minutes to an hour discussing what we all agree on as money and then moving forward on whether or not the thing we're evaluating is good money. Absolutely. Sound money. Yeah. And, and that's uh, the, the other thing that has become obvious to me from traveling and, and doing this uh, across the world is that there is also enormous regional variation in the assumptions that go into money. You know, the, the, the attitudes that, an American house towards uh, banks and their currency versus the attitude that an Argentinian or Greek or, or uh, a Russian has towards their currency, bank, and government is, is incredibly different. So mm -hmm. certain things that you take for granted or assume to be true here in the U.S. are not true at all elsewhere. Um, you know, and the conversation changes dramatically. So here in the U.S., I often have to persuade people why um, uh, you can't always trust the value behind currency, right? The stability of the monetary system. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's hard to do because, of course, Americans are the exception. Um, they're one of the few places where you have monetary stability um, for the past uh, seven decades. Um, based on world reserve currency status and, and the petrodollar. Great. Uh, if, if only everybody could be the world reserve currency and have, uh, have it backed by oil. But that's not the experience of everyone else. That's 5% of the human population. The other 95% have a completely different perspective on currency because theirs isn't the world reserve currency backed by oil. Hmm. So if data is the new oil... You're saying that we need a currency <laughs> backed by data. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, anyways, let's switch the script a little bit. 
you you have mastering Ethereum coming out. I've read mastering Bitcoin. I've read everything you've put out because uh, I call my I consider myself a self respecting crypto enthusiast. So well, thank you. I like to read all of your books. Uh, I'm no doubt going to read this one. What are so? What's been your most eye opening experience while you're doing your research or, or strategizing how you structure the book? What's been the most eye opening thing you've learned about Ethereum? Um, well, honestly, this book has been quite challenging. Um, there have been a combination <laughs> of, of factors that have significantly delayed the launch. So it's, it's now a year late from the original publication date that we had planned. Uh, and this is a project that I started back in 2016 um, to, to, to write this book. Mm-hmm. And un- unfortunately, some personal circumstances intervened and then uh, a lot of things changed in, in, in my life, but, but also a lot of things changed in Ethereum. One of the amazing, fascinating, and also really frustrating aspects of writing a book about mm-hmm. Ethereum is that it's, it's been a moving target, right? When I started this book, the DAO hadn't happened. Uh, when I started researching this book, the DAO hadn't happened. Um, when I started this book, uh, Casper wasn't even close to being finalized, um, which is the proof of stake system for Ethereum. So Ethereum itself is, is a technology that, that moves um, probably at three or four times the speed of, of Bitcoin. It's designed to move much more, uh, much faster with the downsides that come with that because it, it breaks backwards compatibility on purpose in order to keep moving forward. The exact opposite um, this development philosophy uh, than Bitcoin. And at the same time, a whole number of compatible, competitive um, virtual machine blockchains have emerged. Uh, EOS, Cardano, Ethereum Classic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of all of this space has has evolved very, very fast. I set out to write this book in 2016 um, and promised O'Reilly a fairly modest 200-page book to start with. Um, the last uh, the last run we did on the draft is clocking in at over 400 pages, and mm. so the project doubled on me in scope. I thought I could start with a first edition that was relatively modest, that gave you a good overview of Ethereum uh, in 200 pages. Uh, So much has happened that um, I still feel that it's a relatively modest first edition that gives you a good overview of Ethereum and still has some big gaps, but now it's a 400-page modest volume, right? So I can't even think about what the second edition is going to be like. Um, and that's been difficult, like a moving target. Mm. I can only imagine, uh, like I, I follow Ethereum quite closely myself and I try and keep up to date with the drastic architectural changes that Ethereum is trying to make to kind of conquer some of the scaling issues, privacy issues, things like that. And, and it's almost as if the moment you release a book, it's almost obsolete. Whereas Bitcoin's uh, slow development allows you to on-ramp developers that can start contributing after they get your book and read it, which is kind of the difficulty in writing a book about this fast-moving space altogether. Um, Books tend to take longer to make, and that means that by the time they get published and released and available for people who can benefit from them, 
the technology that it tries to explain has already moved past it. And Ethereum, because it's rapid development pace, only exacerbates that type of thing. Do you have anything going on with the book that allows you to update it, maybe piecemeal, change things? I mean, I know that the GitHub is always available for people to read, um, and which will probably be updated as time goes on, but like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, the good news is that uh, uh, publishing nowadays is much more on demand than it used to be. So um, issuing a new edition of the book uh, can be done in, in as little as three, three months from, from the moment I finalize the content. So I'll probably be issuing a second edition of uh, Mastering Ethereum a year after the first edition publishes. Um, in order to catch up with new topics. But I mean, I have the same problem with Mastering Bitcoin. Um, I just published the second edition a year ago. Uh, that was in uh, July of 2017. Uh, and it included newer technologies like uh, segregated witness, uh, SIG hash types, lightning network, uh, payment channels, uh, things like that. And now I'm looking at, I need to do another uh, edition for Mastering Bitcoin. Uh, which will include things like Merkleized abstract syntax trees or Merkle uh, scripts, uh, Schnorr signatures, tap roots, graph roots, new SIG hash types, new Lightning Network protocols, L2, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's moving pretty fast too. Um, I, I've kind of resigned myself to the fact that I'm going to be publishing a book every eight months to a year for the foreseeable future. Um, because writing a new edition in these books is almost the same amount of effort as a, as a new book from scratch. And I'm also resigned to the fact that the book is going to be partially wrong and partially obsolete when it publishes, but that's okay because my main focus in these books is always to teach the underlying principles and fundamentals rather than the particulars of implementation. So that even if the particulars have changed, the fundamental ideas still apply. And if you understand how those work, you can incorporate the changes uh, as they happen. So we'll see how it goes. I, I hope to stay, if not one step ahead, at least less than four steps behind. I've always found that um, like, a, like a personal philosophy of mine is the best way to learn something is to teach it. Uh, have you found that to be true as you've started to write this book and, and figure out how to best explain it to people in an approachable way that, that grasps those core concepts? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's no secret here that this was, uh, this was the intention of the book. Uh, I mean, this was the intention behind Mastering Bitcoin when I started that in 2014. Uh, the intention of writing Mastering Bitcoin was so that I could learn Bitcoin like really, really, really learn it to a level of detail and depth and understanding that I didn't have before. And the difference between the moment when I started writing and the moment when I finished in the first and second edition of Mastering Bitcoin uh, was huge. And the difference between my understanding of Ethereum uh, when I started writing it to today uh, is huge too. So that's absolutely why I wrote the book. It's all about learning. It's absolutely uh, driven by my selfish desire to learn about this technology, assisted by 150 contributors who are willing to go on that journey with me. Well, I think that's a I think that's a beautiful point to wrap up. Um, so, you had you had three chances 
to answer our, our trademark question. And, and you knocked it out of the ballpark, two of those three. So we're going to switch it up just a little and ask something that I don't think we've asked before, Corey, but I'm going to do it anyways. In 10 words or less, can you describe Ethereum? Uh, yes, sure. <laughs> that it? Just going with yeah, it's, I can. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Ethereum. All yeah. right. Here, here we go. Um, Ethereum is a decentralized platform for trusted execution of consensus programs. Centralized platform. I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. On 10. How many yeah. words was that? That was nine. I got nine, Corey. How many did you get? There we go. Are we counting Ethereum? I think I got ten. I don't know. We'll see. It's it's either way, it's on point. Uh that's yeah. And we have true. asked that before. We have? Yeah, we've asked it to other Ethereum uh centric topics that we have on the oh, show. I thought we usually ask like what is blockchain? Uh we've but... we we've we've changed it up. I think we've had Evan on the show. We asked him Ethereum. Okay. Psych, I'm sorry. Somebody's done it before. It's the, the first time we asked you that. If we had, last time we asked you uh, to explain blockchain in ten words or less, and you said it's a bullshit term that people use to hype things they don't understand or something like that. <laughs> I remember that. Yep. Um, well, Andreas, uh, thank you very much uh, for swinging by again the fourth time. Uh, we've only had one other guest do that. If you come, if you come back again, you get the membership jacket. Um, well, I mean, yes, I have the I have the the card with the four hole punches. Um, I <laughs> oh yeah, the fifth yeah, time. next one's a big one. Yeah, the yes. next big hole punch. Um, well, yeah, thank you again, and um, good luck uh, with mastering Ethereum. Um, uh, like I said, all of your books are on my bookshelf and in my Kindle. That's how much oh, I appreciate your so writing. <laughs> I was like, I gotta have it on the go with me just in case. And it's, it's, it's here in physical form. So, um, yeah, thank you. Always appreciate coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. See you soon. Take care. And that was the interview with Andreas Antonopoulos, world traveling educator, all things Bitcoin, moving into blockchain. Mastering Ethereum is coming out soon. I heavily recommend getting Mastering Bitcoin if if you like a little bit more of a technical approach to describing Bitcoin, uh, it's necessary reading. Of course, he's got the Internet of Money, Volume 1 and 2, which is basically just transcriptions of all of his talks, which are phenomenal. Um, yeah, thank you again, Andreas. Can't wait to see you again. So with the, the back end of this, uh, we're going to let you guys go. Uh, just plug some stuff we do. Um, if you go to the BitcoinPodcast.network, Go to Slack, join the Slack. You can hang out with us and you can talk about the things that you want to talk about and we'll talk about them with you. Um, if you're good enough at that, we may actually talk about it on the show. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes it leaks out of the Slack into live. Live. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Medium.com slash the Bitcoin podcast. We uh, have a publication there. If if you write things on Medium and you're interested in spreading your 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 musings across the internet in a different publication than just yourself, uh, you can you can publish there. 
just slide into the Slack and talk to me. I'm Fergalati. And we could we could we, tell you about the process of getting published in our publication. Uh, what else? Did we do any more casting calls? That worked out pretty well last. No, week. we don't need any more of those. We have a, we have a couple new shows coming out real soon, yeah. so that's going to be more stuff for you. Okay. Uh, the hit us up on Twitter. Uh, I have a video on our YouTube, which actually should be getting some more love recent soon as well. Doing some more video content where you're watching this behind the scenes round table. Yeah. Uh, if you want to see my views on the social implications of blockchain, just Google Dr. Corey Petty and it actually just should come up. Yep. Oh, if you have friends or family members that need to be on ramped to Bitcoin and then told the difference between Bitcoin and blockchain in a friendly way, I need people to fill up on ramping with D. So shoot them my way. And I schedule it out. I even have a link I can get you that they could they could basically build my schedule for me. I would love that. And if you have um, a friend that you would like to be told what Bitcoin is, but like in a real shitty way, like make them feel bad about themselves, then ask me. Not really. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. He will though. Jello might. <laughs> know about this? Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> uh, anyways, guys, thank you for listening again. We hope you enjoyed. Go follow all of Andreas and what he does. We you, we promise you. Uh, you you will be satisfied so that's it that's all i got holla play the outro call it back